Music Business Heroes podcast is about unexpected ways that people make a living in the music industry. Stick around to the end of the episode for a chance to win Damien Key's book, The Rule Breaker's Guide to Social Media. You're listening to the Music Business Heroes podcast. We have two hosts on this show. I'm Steve. I'm Mitch. And we're talking to Damien Keys. Damien is a social media strategist and founder of the Brighton Institute of Modern Music, the biggest independent provider for full-time music education in the world. He is also the founder slash director of DK Music Management, the UK's largest commercial band management company, and Warble Entertainment, the largest commercial entertainment agency in the UK. He now creates daily online content for artists hoping to grow their social media audience and build an independent career in music. This year, Damien launched his book, The Rule Breaker's Guide to Social Media, which has become the number one bestseller in marketing on Amazon. How did we do? Did we miss anything? That's, I feel like I'm going to send that to my mom. That was, what an intro. Thanks. Yeah, great. Yeah, you're welcome. Please, please do. I hope she feels proud of you. <laughs> so I think it's fair to say that, uh, Damien, you're making a living in the music industry. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, my background is in music, educa- in, in music education mostly. So um, my background, probably a lot of musicians can relate, I feel, to my background, which is I went through school and over in the UK, we have um, where you have high school, we have a, a, an entry level GCSE course for 15 year olds in order, order for them to pass high school for them to go on to their next exams. It's the first major set of exams that you have to do in order to go on to your hires, then to go on to a degree. And I failed those exams spectacularly badly. Um, And so then I I remember walking home thinking, I've got to tell my mum that I failed all my exams and she's probably not going to be very happy. And I told her and she was actually surprisingly quite good about it. But then she dropped the bombshell that I would need to resit the entire year. So all my friends went off to college and I had to resit the year. So I was like the oldest kid then in, in, that, in, in the year. And I resat the whole year and I did all of the, the exams again and I failed them a second time, spectacularly uh-huh. worse than the first time. And, and at that point, I just remember going home to my mum and saying, it's okay, I'm, I'm gonna be a rock star. I'm gonna be a bass player, I'm gonna be a rock star. <laughs> and I think by that point, my mum had, she kind of given up a little bit. I think she was like, fine. So I, I, I went to a local college to start doing like a, a performing arts, a kind of music-ish uh, performing course. Uh, I got into a band and the band started doing well and we got signed to an independent um, label to, to do a singles deal. We did one single, that did well, and then we got signed to a major. So we had to go down to London to do showcases. Uh, we got picked up by a major label. And at that point, um, we made a record Everyone told us we were going to be the next biggest band in the whole world. I obviously believed them because why wouldn't I? Yeah, of course. We, I just felt like, you know, the dream, you know, you get signed to a major label. That's it. You've done it. You've made it. What nobody told me was that isn't it. <laughs> so so at that point, uh, we got shelved, which meant the record label just kind of parked us for a little bit and then waited. And so we didn't know what we were doing. So we waited and waited. And then at that point... We managed to force them to put the record out. The record flopped because we didn't have any momentum. We got dropped off the label. I was 19 years old. I've got no qualification. At this point, I failed everything. And I just thought, I have to make a living as a musician. I need to figure out this stuff. So I went to um, a a music college at the time, which was just starting. Um, I'm from Wales, which is next to England, a different country. And we basically, I moved to England to go to this music college. Halfway through the year, they asked me to stay on as a teacher. Uh, And then after that, I helped build that college for four or five years before I left to set up uh, a college of my own with with a friend of mine. I had this thing where I've always worked with musicians my entire life. I realized very quickly that education was the thing that I loved the most. I love performing, I love being a musician, and I love touring, but for me, I just love education. I've always loved it. And so my background is mostly in education and helping musicians defining a clear goal of where they are, only because I understand it. I understand when a musician is younger and a musician is hungry 
and saying, I'm prepared to do whatever it takes. The problem is, is nobody has told him or her what it is that they need to do. So, so exactly. I was in that position going, I'll do whatever it takes. I just don't know what that is. Unfortunately, back in the day, the music industry had gatekeepers. It basically, it basically was saying, you're not allowed in unless we let you in. And we live in a time now where they've gone. So we're in control. And the, the music industry works for us instead of us having to try and get into the music industry. And now is the perfect time where music education, like the stuff that you're doing, is the perfect time because... People who, who are sort of you know, graduating or in bands and young or even at any age, they can now learn how this stuff works and it isn't too late like it was for me where all of a sudden I figured the whole thing out, by which time I didn't really fancy going on tours for six months and, you know, and going down that route. So, you know, it's the perfect time. And that's my background is, you know, I've always been a musician first and foremost, but my background is effectively in how I can take a musician from the bedroom to wherever they want to get to. They get to define what their success is. How did that happen? Like, what was it that made someone at the college um, look at you and say, hey, this, this guy is a great educator. Um, he's going to be able to help students. Uh, how did that come about? I really feel I, I have what I class on a daily basis. I class it as an old school attitude. I feel like... I understand because now I feel like I can look back and I can say it was amazing. But at the time, it just felt like I failed everything sure. <laughs> yeah. multiple times in a row. You know, I yeah. was like, oh, my goodness, I failed. I failed. I failed. And I was just thinking, I don't know what to do. And no one's telling me and teaching me. So so from that moment on, I promised myself that whenever any opportunity would come up, not only would I I grip it, but I would make sure that I gripped it so tight that nobody else could take it away from me because it might be the only opportunity that, that I ever got. So so when I started, I remember um, they offered me a job teaching three based students, uh, which was basically a part-time course for, for kids. And I just thought it's just it's just something more positive than than working in a shop. So I was teaching these three kids and, and I remember them saying, look, we need someone to be around to do the stuff that nobody wants to do. So whilst running running this college, you know, silly things like the guitars on the walls need restringing, or sometimes someone's got to go and pick up some artist from from you know from the station or the toilet's blocked or the place needs repainting. And in my head, it was like, that is the coolest thing I've ever heard in my life. And like when they come in and go, yeah, someone's taken a big dump in the toilet and it's broken. I was like, yeah, because I was just thinking, you know, I'm finally useful for something. And I'm and I'm it didn't matter what I was doing because the people I was with, I just looked up to them so much every time, every time they opened because they were teachers and mentors and further down the line me every, every time they opened their mouth. I was just closed mouth, open ears, and just thinking, just teach me, let me learn from you so that I don't have to go back to the to the factory. So effectively, when I got dropped off my label, one thing I omitted was um, I didn't know what to do. And a friend of mine said, well, you need to go and get a job because you need to earn money. And I thought, well, that makes sense. That's what happens in life, you make money. So a friend of mine, the drummer in the band, got me a job in a local shampoo factory and my job was standing at a conveyor, conveyor belt, wiping the shampoo off, off the tops of shampoo <laughs> bottles and then putting it back down. And that was the whole job. And I lasted about three hours. And I just, I was thinking, this is rubbish. This is really bad. And I looked at him and I just said, this is terrible. And he said, yeah, you get used to it. And I said, how long have you been doing this? And he said, seven years. And I just, and something, it was at that moment, something triggered in my head that I, I had to figure out a way of doing this. And so even now, this is 20 years later, even now, my entire life is prefaced around, I'm not going back to the factory. <laughs> I'm just not going back. And so for me, I just, I think I see opportunities as, a desperately fantastic thing. So I don't see, I don't ever want to pass up an opportunity. Um, 
kind of like the yes man book you know you say yes to everything sure because it could lead to something and i think that's how it started so i started off just effectively i say teaching bass but i was teaching bass for probably three hours a week and i was doing just odd jobs around the place that people didn't want to do for 40 hours a week and then it just kind of grew and grew and then you know in life someone will come underneath you as someone else leaves and you kind of work your way up slowly but surely and all of a sudden you find that you're the top of the tree because you, you've been there the longest and all and you know more than everybody else and you know and and you know you you guys will know this but one of the big things with being a musician is is stamina yes you know all of a sudden the people that you went to college with you start looking around five years later and thinking three quarters of them have given up and they've gone into just you know families and jobs and then 10 years down the line you're thinking oh it's just two of us from when i went to college because people don't have that that stamina to stay in it so the longer you stay in it weirdly enough the more chance you've got of actually getting somewhere yeah, that theme's come up a few times, this idea of longevity, of stamina, 10 years to overnight success type of, of yeah. idea, right? Like, you know, we always hear on TV, we always hear, you know, the best new artist to come out this year gets the Grammy for the, you know, the best new artist, but that person's not new, you know, they've been working at this for 10, 15 years. So no, I mean, it's kind of a misnomer that they're a new artist. There's no overnight successes. It really, like one of the best options that you have for a career in the music industry is to just stick with it because it doesn't just happen. Yeah, right, because the other thing as well is when it comes to talent, talent takes time. You know, you don't just wake up one day, jump in a swimming pool and go and say, wow, I'm the fastest swimmer in the whole <laughs> world. It just, you know, it's the same thing with being an artist. You don't just wake up one day and just think, wow, I just happened to give give singing a go and I was the best singer in the world. And, you know, it's just, it's every detail, not just as a musician or as a singer, but what clothes you wear and what you stand for and your lyrics and, you know, and how many songs you write. And so, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. It's just, it's about taking the luck out of it. But we live in a world where luck is so, people are desperate for the luck, you know, on everything. I was actually doing a talk in in Charleston this week and the, the usual topic came up of influencer marketing and influencers. And everyone's talking about Kobe Bryant. <laughs> And I didn't want to be the bearer of bad news, but I was like, you know what, Kobe, you haven't got a million bucks to spend on Kobe Bryant. No offense. Let's stop trying to get Kobe Bryant. Like, it's just that home run. You know, oh, I just got Kobe Bryant to feature me in a tweet and now I'm just really famous. And that's what everybody wants that just, I just, I don't want to do all the work and take the time. Can you just magic me to the end like Harry Potter? And, and, and the answer is, no, I can't. It's not, that's not no, the thing. But if you're prepared to put the work in, then you, you can do it, you know? Yeah, it seems obvious to point it out, but it's like where you spend your time and what you spend your time doing, those are the things that are going to improve in your life. And it, it might take some sacrifices to do that. So if a career in uh, the music industry is what you want, then yeah, it's going to take time. You're going to have to spend a lot of your time Yeah doing whatever your craft is. If you're a musician that is practicing your instrument, if it's, um, you know, you're a manager or a marketer or something, then it's, it's connecting with people and, you know, uh, building these campaigns and thinking of promotion ideas and things like that. Like you just have to spend the time doing it and you'll get better at it and your career will move forward. And like Steve said, 10 years to overnight success, like it's going to take time. It's just a long slog. And we've heard that from everyone. Yeah, pretty like, it's much. Just, yeah. It's so, it's so hard, but you just like, you make little incremental steps. Eventually you're like, oh yeah, I'm doing it. I've, I've got this thing yeah. going on. I'm supporting myself. I'm supporting yeah. my family. And it's uh, tough, isn't it? Yeah. It, it? It's tough because we're all impatient. All yeah. of us, you know, even the people who bang on about being patient and like me, I'm like, you've got to be patient. You've got to be patient. Meanwhile, every single day I'm checking my YouTube numbers going, come on, quicker. <laughs> so, you know, we're all impatient. It's just it's built into us to want to get there as fast as possible. And a big part of it, one thing I really feel that's important is enjoying the enjoying doing what you do. I mean, one thing I felt like when I built the, the music college, 
you spend so much time so desperate to get to the bit that you want to do that you forget to enjoy getting there. And then when you get there, it's not, it's, got, it's not good enough because as soon as you get to a place you want to get to, the first thing your brain says is, well, where are we going now? Yes. So unless you're enjoying the journey, you're in a place where you can never get to. So you might as well just enjoy the journey whilst you're trying to get there and actually look around sometimes and think to yourself, this is really fun. Yeah. So let's go back a little bit then and connect the dots from um, working in a school that you were previously a student at to starting your own music college. Because that's a pretty, I mean, that's a pretty big leap between those two steps. That was crazy. So we'd kind of, we kind of built this school kind of, not accidentally, but it kind of grown. We, we, we'd obviously got a product that was very exciting. And we were helping musicians and we got it to the point where it was very unmanageable. What we felt was unmanageable because we felt that there was more students than we wanted and we didn't own the business. So we were just dealt with managing them. And we just thought, wouldn't it be great if we could do it our way and we actually owned the school? So that's what we decided to do. And I remember the, the, the company that we left, the school that we left, it just had a two million pounds, so about, you know, probably two and a half million dollar um, facelift, a building with just the most amazing gear in it. And we'd left and it was a bit of a Jerry Maguire moment where we basically stood up and said, we're going to leave and we're going to set up in competition. And everyone was like, yeah. And we went, who's with us? And everyone went, no. <laughs> so, <laughs> so off we went. And I remember thinking, how is this going to work? We've got nothing, you know, we've got no money. Um, but the one thing we had, and I think this is the key, and this is the key to musicians, this is the key to creators. What we did have was we had knowledge and we had a way to add value. And I think that to me was worth more than the millions of pounds and dollars worth of gear that they had, was I was able to sit down with a musician and say, I have time. And, and it's the same thing with bands and musicians. When you think, how am I going to compete with, with Muse or the Foo Fighters? Because they've got all the budgets and all the people. Well, I'll tell you what you can do is you can compete on a one-to-one -one basis better than anybody, any other big band in the world. Because Dave Grohl can't do that. Dave Grohl can't sit chatting one-to-one -to, -one to his audience. Because A, there's too many of them. But B, he's too busy. He's not going to do that. So he's got to do it in a different way. But right now, bands and artists, whenever I, I, I get about 50 odd emails and, and messages on, on, on my socials a day from bands and musicians, and they're always saying, oh, I've only got a thousand followers on Facebook, or I've only got this many followers on Instagram. And I'm like, now flip it around, hang on. You've got a thousand people who are interested, a thousand people who are interested in you. That's amazing. Yeah. Yes. Like if you actually talk to these thousand people, because Dave Grohl isn't going to talk to his audience, you get to talk to these people one-to-one. -one. They are going to appreciate it. They're going to value you. They're going to they're going to be listening to you. And they're going to come on your journey. And more importantly, they're going to tell all of their friends, you can now do something on a smaller level better than a big band can do. And that was what we had at BIM. Every single time a potential student came in, we treated them like they were the golden goose. You know, we, we want, I, wanted, I wanted to know who they were. I wanted to know what band they were in. I wanted to know how I could help. I wanted to sit with them and draw a plan on a piece of paper and say, this is what you need to do. And this is what we're going to work on together, knowing that there wasn't another college in the world that could do that because they had thousands of students. And we had, you know, one. <laughs> so, you know, we could treat those students like they were just the be all and end all. Yeah, that's a huge point about, um, you know, a, th a thousand people being interested in your band or whatever the thing is that you're doing. That's all you need. Yeah. Right. We, yeah. we think that, oh, I've got to be a rock star. I've got to be Dave Grohl. I've got to have millions of people into what I'm doing in order to be successful at this thing or make a living at this thing. But no, if you've got a thousand people who are really into it, they're going to support you. You're going to be able to do it. So the idea that you can um, be successful on a much smaller scale is, is eye-opening and freeing, really, because it seems a lot more obtainable. Yeah, and like remember... 
you know, remember the time when you had to actually buy music? Like, yeah. <laughs> that was a thing that we all had to do. We had to actually, not only do we have to buy music, but we had to go to the shop to buy yeah. it. Like, we had to get off our bum and actually, we had to go to town to buy a CD, to then take it home, to then put it in the CD player. And, you know, all of the things that you had to do to, to manufacture that was huge. And nowadays, I can make something here and now on my laptop and I can put it, not into a shop, but I can put it into the world's shop on the internet and someone from 3,000 miles away could listen to it and just hit me up. They can just talk yeah, to me. Yeah. They can literally just find me on Twitter and they can just say, dude, I love your song. You know, and, you know, 10, well, 20 years ago, if someone had said, oh, you'll be able to just talk to famous people or anyone or the music industry or anyone. You just talk to anyone now. How much would that be worth? We'd have all said, that's worth everything. That's worth everything I own. Like, imagine if I could just get to anybody. I can get to Dave Grohl if I try hard yeah. enough. You know, these things, and I think they're really taken for granted because, because we have a sort of a negative society who just says, well, yeah, but it's noisy or yeah, there's lots of people doing it and it's harder now. And you think, well, yeah, okay, it is harder, but it's better to have these things and it's harder rather than not have them at all. I mean, I, I don't know, I'm a bit older than you guys, but I don't know if you ever actually sent off demo tapes, like where you had to record things and actually send them in the post to record labels, not even knowing if there was a building or just, <laughs> you know, sending them off and being like, please listen to my demo on this CD and get back to me. You know, and then you get a letter back from the record label saying, thank you very much, not at this time, which basically means we put it in the bin. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and nowadays is so much opportunity and it's just a case of actually saying, oh, hang on a minute, this is amazing and, and utilizing the opportunities. You know, I was, I was literally with someone three hours ago and, and, and they've just got an EP and they were like, I don't know what to do next. And I was like, the reason why you don't know what to do next is because there's so much opportunity of so many ideas and things that you can do next, you don't know where to start. You could sit on Twitter for three or four hours just talking to people saying, do me a favor, listen to this, or can I send you this, or starting competitions. You know, there's so many millions of ways to now get reach that people are, it's, it's, it's uh, in front of them so much that they're so up close to it that it's very, very difficult to know where to start. So what's maybe one practical tip you can give people who say they did just uh, record an EP or an album, something. Now they, they want to start doing some promotion for their music. Where could they start? So I have this thing at the moment where we've got a really weird time where because music is free, because if you think about the songs that have completely changed your life, like for me, when I was 15, I don't know about you guys, but the song that changed my life was I was in a, a like a, a pool hall and I was 15 and they had MTV playing on a big screen back when they played music on MTV. Yeah, that is a long and time ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, instead of pregnant 16 year olds. But basically what happened was um, Enter Sandman came on by Metallica and I was like, whoa, this is amazing. And I just remember pointing and thinking, I wanna do that, whatever that is, I wanna do that forever. It was a, It just changed my life. And if you think about the songs that changed your life and, and when you start in a band and the first song you ever learned to play. And and then, you know, for me, the biggest band when I was a kid was Rage Against the Machine. I was just a huge Rage Against the Machine fan. These bands changed my life. How much are these songs worth? They are priceless to us. But how much would we pay for them? Well, nothing, because we don't need to. So it's priceless, but at the same point, they're on Spotify or YouTube, so I don't need to pay for them, so it's fine. And so what we have now is we have this time where musicians are looking at tradition and we are desperately trying to get people to buy music in a time when people are getting the music for free. So if you say to someone, do you want to buy this music or do you want it for free? Society says, uh, I think I'll have it for free. Mm -hmm. And then we go, OK, but I'll just ask you again if you do want to buy it. And people are going, I don't, I don't want to buy it. I want to hear it, but I don't want to buy it. And so we're trying to force the, 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 the money side of it down people's throats. And the reality is, is music is free. So what we should be doing is looking at rewarding the audience and building the audience with the music 
And giving that away for free, because it is free, so let's recognize that. And let's really reward our audience by making great stuff, by creating music, by creating video, by creating content, and giving it away and saying, this is for you, this is for you, this is for you, because I value you, because I love you, because you know, because I love the fact that you, you listen to my stuff, and I appreciate that. And then you monetize something else. So, you know, YouTubers have got it right. YouTubers, I know they get paid for streaming streaming um, or streams, but they don't get paid a lot considering. Um, but what they do get paid for, especially the big YouTubers, is merch. So they're getting loads and loads of money from merch or they're getting loads of money from brand deals. And so musicians now are in a, a, a good position to be able to build an audience who believe in them and then and then look at the barter system of being able to get a brand which goes in front of their audience, in front of their audience, without being a sellout, but in a way that allows them to fund what they're doing. So effectively, using the music to say thank you to the audience instead of trying to sell them that, and then finding another way to be able to monetize the audience once they're into it. Because once you're into a band, you want to buy their t-shirt, you want to buy their merch. And I would class um, I would class physical copies of music as merchandise. So a really funny thing happened to me a couple of weeks back. Um, a friend of mine texted me and he said, um, dude, I, um, I, I, what's your address? I want to send you something. So I was like, I give him my address. The next day, a, a package turns up and I open the package and a CD is in it. And in it was a note from my friend Rob, and it just said, I heard this and I thought of you. And it was a band called Blackberry Smoke. And I opened it and I was like, oh, that's so cool. What a lovely thing to think about me and think about this CD. And I was walking back to my desk and I pulled out the CD inlay and I opened it and I'm looking at the artwork and I sat at my desk and I brought up Spotify and I typed in Blackberry <laughs> Smoke and I, I started playing the music through my Spotify while I'm holding the CD in my hand. And I'm like, what a lovely thing to do. <laughs> and, and I thought, that, and since then I've, I've listened to the band 50 times on Spotify and I've never played the CD. I haven't even got a CD player, so I can't yeah, play the CD. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but what, you know, but that, that CD, which is just over on the wall, you know, it's it's now it's now an emotional treasured possession that a friend of mine has sent me, and the music is really meaningful. I just don't put the two and them together because I don't need it. So all of a sudden, merchandise and emotional is emotional value, and you can you can tap into that because people will buy CDs not to listen to, but they will buy them because they want to say. I'm part of your tribe. I'm part of your your group. And and same thing with a t-shirt. You know, I've got like, you know, a Biffy Clyro t-shirt or a Foo Fighters t-shirt because I want to say I'm part of their gang. Um, and do I buy their music? No, but I do support them in other ways. And whenever they play in this country, I want to go and see them live. So they're still getting their money and I'm and they're monetizing me in a different way. And for sort of younger, sort of non-huge bands that are just starting to make their way, you can definitely build your audience by consistently bringing value with the music and the story and the journey and then monetize it in a different way. That's the second time we've heard recently this phrase, this idea of building your tribe, figuring out, you know, who's who's your people or, you know, I think musicians would probably recognize the phrase, you know, who's your audience? Find your audience, figure out who are you speaking to, who are you singing to, who are you writing music for, and then develop that relationship. You had your audience was this small group of musicians that were coming to your school that you could work with on a one-on-one -on -one basis where the last school, the last institution that you work with, you know, they couldn't do that. They were, they were too big. They had too many students. So you started your own school. You started your own business and you worked with the strengths that you had. And the strength that you had at the time was time. You had all this additional time on your hand. That's another theme that keeps repeating itself is working to your strengths. You know, mm. what value can you provide to your audience? And just focus on that first and figure out how your audience is responding to that and how you can continue to give that to your audience. You know, whether it's, you know, they really dig your music or you can you can really connect with them individually or you can create, I don't know, personalized content for, you know, individual people. If you're working with six people on the internet, who really like the music that you're making, then just make music for those six people and see where it takes you. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I have a thing where I, I think nowadays, whilst we do kind of enjoy what people do, but the, the important bit is why people do it as opposed to what people do. So when people are putting stuff on social media and they're saying, I'm in the studio, we go, oh, okay, that's quite cool. But when we say why we're doing something, that's the story, that's the journey, that's the bit that we buy into, you know, what we stand for. And I think the, the good thing with social media is that you can tell that story every day. And as soon as someone talks to you, you've opened conversation, you've opened a relationship build. And I see bands shut that down every day. And it's a shame because can you imagine if you're on stage, you play a gig, it's a great gig, you, you finish the set, you put your guitar down, you walk off stage, someone walks up to you and goes, dude, man, that was sick. That was such a great gig. And imagine if you just stuck your thumb in their face and then just walked off. That's like, the fire emoji. What just happened? <laughs> yeah, fire emoji. You'd be like, what just, what just happened? But that's what people do with their social media. They watch a video and go, dude, that's amazing. And then you go, like. And you think, oh, you had an opportunity to say, dude, thank you so much. Like, that's, that's I'm just, like, I really appreciate it. You know, where are you from? Or, or what do you do? Or tell us about you. Or where did you come from tonight? Or it's just an opportunity to be able to start a relationship instead of just going, cheers, thanks very much. And then moving on to the next thing. And again, it's that opportunity. There's always that opportunity to be able to just make something out of nothing which is overlooked, the tiniest detail. Like for example, you know, us doing this means we now have a relationship forever. Like I've got you on all my notifications. Every time you do something, it pops up and I'll be like, oh guys, I'm like, and I'll be messaging you guys. And you know, it's just that sort of relationship building is like, is now so powerful, more powerful than it's ever been. And the next time I'm with someone uh, who, I think would be great for you guys. I'd be like, oh, you need to talk to, you know, you need to talk to these guys and I'll be messaging you going, you need to talk to this guy. And, you know, it's just, it's so much of an opportunistic world. And it starts with hello. And it's such a weird concept, but people are just thinking, I can't put my record out because it's not perfect and it's going to take me another six months and my audience, and you know, we'll start with hello. Just let's have a chat. Let's start with a nice hello. And it's nice and simple. And as soon as you say hello, guess what? Everyone says hello back. And then you're in. It's as simple as that. <laughs> yeah, this is also great to hear because it's just reiterating so many conversations that we've been having. Like even just between Steve and I or with our guests, like this is the new music industry. This is the new model. It's relationships. Yeah, it's, it's, and you never know who's watching or you know that's another thing you never know who's watching which is really funny because you know i'll go to you know a local gig and i'll do that two or three nights a week and someone will tap me on the shoulder and go oh i watch your videos and i'm thinking oh i've never seen you before in my life it's terrifying but just because they don't engage just because they don't like or they don't comment it doesn't mean they're not watching it doesn't mean that they haven't seen who you are and a big thing with the music industry is everyone's desperate to face the music industry instead of facing the audience. But when you face the audience, you don't realize that the music industry is watching at all times because that's their job. It's always there. You know, they are there to find the next big artist. And so if you face the music industry, usually the music industry turns around and turns its back on you because if you need the music industry, it will never be there for you. It's a really weird thing like that. Whereas if you face the audience and you say, this is gonna happen anyway, then at that point, you say, we don't need the music industry. We're going to do this ourselves. The music industry says, can I play? I want to be a part of this. And that's the, it's a really weird thing where you have to prove that it's going to work with or without the music industry. And then the industry wants to help you. But if you say, I don't know how to do this. I need the music industry's help. The music industry says, well, in that case, it, it's not going to happen. So we can't be bothered. It's such an odd way of working, but that's the way it is. And now, you know, people are watching because of social media. I've got friends who are in labels and managers. I was at um, a big event last year called In The City, which is a big event in Manchester. Uh, and I was hanging out and it was an A&R friend of mine, a, a manager. 
And these guys live all over the country. And we were sat there chatting. Oh, do you know this band? Because they come to me and they're like, tell us some cool bands. Tell us what's hot and tell us what's not. Tell us what's in Brighton. Every single time I mentioned the band, they were like, yeah, yeah, no, I know about that band. And I'd say, okay, what about this artist? And they go, yeah, I know about her. And I go, okay, what about this? Yeah, yeah, I know about her. And I'm like, how do you know these things? And they're like, it's our, it's our job. Like, we just sit there watching this stuff and we're trying to figure out what's working and what's not working. But as bands, we don't think anyone's watching. We're just terrified that it's just, we're not getting the numbers and no one's watching. But the irony is, is lots more people are watching than you think. So just show up, just do the thing. That's the hard part. I think we all find waking up and saying, go again. And then the next day waking up and saying, I got to go again. And you know, you make something great. And the first thing is, what's next? And you go, right, I've got to do it all over again and again yeah. and again. But long term, it really does pay off. So speaking of what's next, you've you moved from you started a whole school and then you said, great, that, that was a success. Uh, what's next? How do I transition my career from founding a new music school, which is now a huge music school, to to whatever the next thing is? The, the, the D, was it the DK Music manage, Management Company? Was that the next project after you left um, BIMM? It was. Yeah. And that I was actually that was an accident. So I actually left. Uh, BIM. I sold BIM. Uh, I decided that I, I was spending more time in meetings with financial advisors and accountants and lawyers than I was with students. And I just thought, you know what, this has been great, but I fancy doing something else. But it took nine months to sell the business. And I'd never sold a business before. And so I just thought, well, I need to do something. And being a musician and being scared because I didn't know what was next in my life. I just knew that I was 30 and I had a long way to go, hopefully before I died, and therefore I needed to figure out what I was going to do. I turned, <laughs> as we as we all do, I turned to the one thing that I knew wouldn't let me down, my bass guitar. <laughs> that was the one <laughs> thing that I just knew couldn't, it couldn't leave me. Uh, and I started a band, and that band then just just to just to forget everything, just to you know, music music is just such an amazing way of forgetting your problems, just to to tune out life. And I just started a band to just have some fun with my friends, which started getting lots of gigs. Uh, and I started getting asked to, 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 you know, more gigs meant I was able to build a second band for an agency I was working with. And it kind of just accidentally happened where they kept saying, can you build me more bands? And because I'm used to dealing with musicians, and I think my biggest strength in the music industry isn't my knowledge of the music industry. I think my biggest strength is actually I know how musicians think to want to create and understand that not knowing where the money is or the long-term futures are. I know all of those things. And so I was able to help musicians with the bit that they couldn't do because giving a musician a guitar and just saying, play that, that's when they're in their element. You know, that's the bit they can really, really do. But saying to them, now go and sort out some insurance, not so much. <laughs> you know, at that, moment, at that point. So I was able to say, look, I'll do those bits or I'll get my team to do those bits and I'll just let you do the bit, which you do really well, which is play. Yeah, so that so that's kind of transition now too from a, a music management. Well, I guess, how did you move from then? People are coming to you with these questions of how do I manage my social media? How do I reach out to people? What's What does this look like? How do I use these tools to my advantage to... A book <laughs> yeah and considering the last book i read was fantastic mr fox i don't you know which was when i was about nine <laughs> i don't don't know how that came back but the, the the social media thing came back because i was actually on tour and um you know i'd gone through the phases of social media isn't important into social media is important and it's okay because I've hired a child to do all my social media because that's what I thought was the right thing to do because they understand that. Yeah. Um, and I was actually on tour at the time and get this, two years ago, I had no Facebook. I had, I had a YouTube, but it was only to watch YouTube. It was like I had a Gmail, so therefore I had a YouTube. Um, I had I had an Instagram, which I just, I mean, I probably had three pictures on it, but the only social media that I used two years ago, and this is terrible, was Snapchat. And the reason why I used Snapchat is because whilst I was on tour with the guys in my band, I would take pictures of the guys in my band 
Then I would draw a dick on their head, and then I would, and then I would send, I would send that picture to them because I thought that was, I thought that was hilariously funny. To me, that was the funniest thing that I could possibly think of. And I remember a friend of mine who was really in social media, and she said, "You got, you got to take social media more important because you're going to start a new business and you are going to be lost." And I, and it. It hit, you know, I was probably drawing a picture at the time, and I remember thinking, "Oh no, she's right. I don't know what I'm doing." You know, I've, I've not even got Facebook. I try, you know, I was one of those. I don't like fake. I don't want to know what your lunch was. I don't need Facebook. And I panicked. I really panicked, and I just immersed myself in social media, like every, from when I woke up to when I went to bed. I was like, "I need to learn. I need to learn." Luckily for me, because I have a background with the business background of building marketing. You know, business marketing and branding. It, I only had to learn the vehicle and the consumption as well as you know, because I had that background. Luckily for me, right. so I felt like within six months of working at it, literally night and day, all day, every day, I felt like I was starting to get to grips. But you know, we're dealing with an industry which is, you know, people say it's twenty years old. It's not. I mean. It's, it started with MySpace, and even then it wasn't an advertising dream, was it? I mean, I loved MySpace. MySpace was, that was my favorite thing. Do you know what? There was a time, I think, where everyone left MySpace, and I think at the end it was just me and Tom from MySpace, <laughs> and it was just the two of us, and everyone had gone to Facebook, and <laughs> and I loved, because I was in a band, and, Facebook, and MySpace was great, and then the Facebook generation took off, and even then it was sort of 2008 to 2010, it started to pick up, but it's only only been the last six to six to eight years that this social media industry is really taking off. So it's all very well saying we're an expert, but how can you be an expert in something that's that's so new, that's changing so rapidly that it could be totally different by tomorrow? I mean, I felt like I was smashing Facebook. I mean, I was, you know, I was getting... 250 to 300 new sort of audience members and likes every single week. And I was, you know, all of a sudden I was, I was on 20 plus thousand on my Facebook and I'm like, this is easy. <laughs> and then January came and then Facebook changed its algorithm and now it's a ghost town. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh, what do I, what do I do? Well, I've got to learn. I've got to relearn all over again just because Facebook made a decision. And then it's the same thing. I was all over Snapchat and then Instagram changed and then Snapchat was not as important as Instagram. And, I, and I'm, you know, I'm scrabbling to keep up and I'm working on this 24 seven. I've got a team of people. I've now got six people who work for me full time on social media. And I'm every day I'm keep, trying to keep up. So I'm thinking, how are musicians gonna keep up with this stuff? You know, this stuff is changing every day. So that's the bit is I want to be able to say to musicians the same as I've always done. Listen, you concentrate on the bit that you need to concentrate and let me help you with the bits that you that you don't need to spend time doing. So if I can say to musicians, just make great music and I'll tell you how to distribute it and how to get your stuff out so you're not spending excess time doing things that you don't want to do. So I feel like that's kind of my role is this kind of facilitator of let me figure out social media kindness so you don't have to. And uh, is is that, so you take this deep dive into social media and you, you learn everything you can learn. And so is this all the information that's distilled in your book? It is. And the book was a really weird thing. I had a, <laughs> oh, this is terrible. I had a phone call from a publishing company and they said, we love your stuff. We've been watching your videos. Do you want to write a book? And I remember thinking, no, I, I mean, I, I don't. Uh, and they said, oh, you know, we'll pay you. And I was like, oh, in that case, yes, I do. <laughs> so I went for this, I went for this meeting and I sat with this, this publishing, this guy was really old and he was talking to me and he said, look, you know, um, he made me fill out this form of what I wanted the book to be and how it was going to work. And so I'd written all this stuff out. Can, can I, am I allowed to swear on this, uh, this podcast? Yeah, sure. Okay, good. Okay. So I turned, <laughs> I turned up and he had the, he had all my papers in front of me and, and the first thing, and he looked at, he looked at, peered over his glasses, he looked down at the sheet and he looked at me and he said, um, for the title of your book, you've called it fuck plan B. <laughs> and, and I was like, 
yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he went, no, you, you, you can't call it that. And I was like, why? It's my book. And he went, no, no, no. We're paying you to write this book. Now it's our book. And I just thought, oh no, this is like being a record label all over yeah. again. It's like being assigned. I don't get yeah. a say in anything. Yeah. So, and at that point I, I just went, do you know what? I don't, I, I thank you, but I've got enough on my plate. I don't want to do it. And I kind of went away and I just thought, I've never thought about writing a book. I just, that's ridiculous. I failed my GCSEs twice. I mean, I've, I have no qualifications whatsoever. And I was thinking, that's brilliant. I can write a book. And what better way to sell a book than to say, I've never read a book. <laughs> this is ridiculous. So, and I just wanted to do it on exactly that. I wanted to do it on, why do we have to follow these rules? Who's setting these rules out? You know, there's rules that we need to play to because it's safe. I get that. You know, you don't want to burn yourself or you don't want to get hit by a car. So there are rules to keep you on the straight and narrow. But there's also loads and loads of rules that are set in play because of school, which are actually tradition and they're to keep you in line rather than trying to actually make you successful. And I wanted to actually delve into those rules of, is that a rule? Or is that something that we do because everyone else does it and it's actually holding us back? So I had a conversation with my PA yesterday. My conversation went like this. You now have one hour where you're allowed to be on your laptop. If you keep going over your allotted time on your laptop, I own the laptop because I bought it for you. I'm going to snap that laptop in half and you will not have a laptop. Because when she sat on her laptop, She's on emails and she's sending emails out and they're coming back and it's just this email culture. And I'm like, we don't need to do that. You can work. I was on a plane two days ago. I was 30,000 feet in the air and I was doing emails whilst traveling somewhere, whilst making plans. I'm like, why do I need to be in an office with, with a laptop? It's just something that has come from tradition because we used to need to be here because we had a, we had a, a disk drive which needed to be plugged into a wall. So, but we're still here. And, you know, the other bit, which I think is hilarious, you know, from a musician point of view is, this is the best. So how many tracks are on an album? 12, yeah? Yeah. Give or take, about 12. Now, the reason for that is because back in the day, we made vinyl. And on vinyl, there was 22 minutes on each side, which works out at about 12 minutes. But then... CDs came along and they allowed us to put 30 more minutes onto a CD. And as musicians, we went, oh, that's amazing. How many songs are we going to put on a CD? And we went, uh, 12. And then, and then CDs went away. And now music is like on our phone. Like we can do anything we want. Like anything goes. We can make a 35 minute song. We can make a hundred songs on an album. We can do anything we want. You go on Spotify. How many songs do people put on an album? 12. And it's like, there's no, there's no, there's nothing wrong with that because I understand that's what people expect, but it's just a tradition that we're following along with because it's always been there right. instead of saying, why can't I do something completely different and then find the niche on Facebook or on social media that is buying into the thing that I want to do. When I was a kid, I wanted to be in the ultimate technical metal band, which is why I wasn't very successful with that band. <laughs> I feel like if if I could do it now, I probably could make it work because I could go and find the small pockets of people who are into those bands, which I couldn't find there. Right. So it's that tradition thing. I wanted to write a book on on that and then how social media consumption fits into what we think of as rules, which are absolutely not there. And if we can kind of free our mind a little bit, then all of a sudden... The sky is the limit because of all the amazing things that are at our fingertips completely for free. So you've got a lot of projects going on. You've done a few different things in, in the music industry. Um, do you have anything coming up that is a change for you or just any project you're working on right now that you're excited about? The, the big th I really want to expand the social media because I really want to learn and I want to learn so that I can pass on the information. For me, I don't, I don't care about the money side to it. That doesn't bother me. I'm never going to monetize my audience just because I don't need to. I'll make my money elsewhere. But I want to be able to do this because I want to, I want people, it's kind of a personal brand. You know, I want people to go, oh, you're the guy who helps musicians. 
And so I really want to build that. One thing I would say, which I think will help musicians, is what I'm doing with the books is the same thing as what I would do is if I was being a musician again. And that is, I'm not writing a book. I'm actually writing five books. I've kind of signed myself to an imaginary five book publishing deal because in doing so, I'm already thinking about book five and when that's coming out instead of making a book and then putting it out and then thinking, what do I do now? And then having to think about what it is I'm going to do. Whereas now I've got five books. I'm already thinking, when am I, when I, when do I stop promoting and start to write the second book? And when, when do I, you know, when can I start going back to the people I talked to with the first book to get them excited about the second book, knowing that the real sort of journey will start probably book four because at the moment people are going oh this guy wrote a book I don't know who he is but he's written a book by the time he gets to book two people will go oh you're the guy who wrote the book but by the time he gets to book four people will be expecting the next book so at that point that's when the momentum starts so I would like musicians to think about signing themselves if they're going to make an EP then why not commit to a time frame and a certain amount maybe three EPs and so that way, you're actually saying, well, I'm going to make three EPs in the space of 18 months, for example. Therefore, I know I'm going to make them every six months. And therefore, I can work backwards from the 18 months to, the, to, to, to now with the promotion to the EP. And that way, we've got an 18-month plan instead of this, this kind of sort of splintered plan which musicians do where they make something, they don't quite know what to do with it, and then they just stop. And then they have to start again. Do you want to wrap up with some rapid fire questions that have nothing to do with anything? Yeah. What's something you shouldn't have bought that you realized you can't live without? <laughs> oh, so many things. Uh, I, I mean, I am still a musician at heart. I'm realizing that I've got too many guitars. You know that thing where, you know that thing where you start opening drawers in the kitchen and there's guitar pedals and you're thinking, I don't think guitar pedals belong in the kitchen, but they've kind of expanded everywhere. I'm kind of like that with guitars. I've got, you know, you open the cupboard and you're like, oh yeah, guitars. You know, I've, I've started doing this thing where, you know, I'm, I'm lending them to people because I'm a bit embarrassed the fact that I've got like, you know, it's probably not even a, a crazy amount, but I've probably got about 13 or 14 basses and, and I'm like, I just use one. You know, the one that's behind you is my main bass. You know? uh, what's your favorite guitar solo? Oh, my favorite. Do you know, my favorite piece of music and my favorite guitar solo is Dire Straits, Brothers in Arms. Uh, current favorite band? I've kind of got two, can I say two? Uh, Nothing But Thieves is my favorite band at the moment. Um, I just think it's got that it's got that sort of a, a cross between Jeff Buckley, a bit of radio hairs, um, but the guy's voice is so haunting. But I had this weird thing where I was in New York about six months ago, and I just thought, I'm gonna go and see, a, I'm gonna go and see a gig. And I just was looking around, everything was DJs, and there was a band playing, and I just thought, yeah, fine, I'll go and watch that. It was in, it was in the Bowery Ballrooms. And I turned up, and the band was called Arkles, and they're from Canada. I don't know if you've heard of them. Um, the best gig I've ever been to in my life. They were, amazing. And, and I'd never heard of them. And they were absolutely amazing. They were so amazing. And I remember leaving just thinking, how does the world not know about this band? They're yeah. so tight and it was the singer was just such an amazing front man so they're kind of like they're kind of my band they're my band of the moment how about a guilty pleasure band the backstreet boys oh yes. and i'm good and i'm gonna say it because i just feel like they're just they could so they could so lend themselves to being a metal band you know they're so riffy <laughs> uh, what's your favorite sandwich so when i was a kid you know when you're like allowed to start cooking for yourself, like your mum just allows, you know, mum just goes, yeah, do what you want. And there's no sort of nutritional value in anything. So you just think, well, I can do whatever I want now. There's no yeah. rules. And so I used to do this thing where I'd like, I'd, I'd have a mass, like, you know, the cut your own bread. I'd have like a fried egg and just a big load of cheese and like probably some bacon 
and I, you know, I'd call it the heart attack sandwich, you know, and like, I couldn't eat it now. I'd be dead in like, I'd be dead in a day. But when you're like 15, it was like, and it would be like a doorstop. And I'd be like, I remember thinking, I know this is really naughty, but I just don't care. <laughs> uh, finally, who would win in a fight? Taylor Swift or Justin Bieber? I reckon Justin Bieber could pack a punch. Like, I don't know, but like, you know, I think Justin Bieber, I think, you know, he does that thing where you think, well, he's just a kid, but I reckon if he punched me in the face, I, f- I reckon it would hurt a lot. <laughs> oh, the Beebs takes one. It's been a while the since Beebs the Beebs one. took one. All right. Damien Keyes, author of The Rule Breaker's Guide to Social Media. If anyone wants to reach out to get in touch with you, to listen to your music or check out your book or, or have a chat, what would be the best way to do that? So I'm on, all social media comes through to my phone. So as you can imagine, it pings a lot. Uh, but basically, if you put Damien Keyes, which is D-A-M-I-A-N-K-E-Y-E-S, stick that into any social media, I'll be in there. Say hello, and you'll, you'll you'll no doubt get a hello back at some point. Awesome! Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, this has been absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for having me. What I loved about Damien Keys is what a failure he is. Yeah, he really screwed up big time <laughs> at the beginning of his whole career and did not let that stop him. Failing his uh, school exams, not once but twice. Yep. But then he turns to uh, what any self-respecting high schooler would turn to in that case, which is, I'm going to be a rock star. <laughs> Everything's going to be fine. <laughs> the thing with Damien Keys is, though, he made rock star work, right? He did it. He, he did. He, he joined a band. He got signed. They did the major label thing. Right. Well, he right. He was almost a rock star. That's that nebulous transition from I have a record contract and made a record to I'm a rock star. Right. I'm actually supporting myself from the record that I made. That's right. That's that's right. And as we've learned, a lot of people have tried to make that transition from I have a record contract to I am a rock star. And something happened along the way and it just didn't work out. So he took that momentum his experience in the music industry and he moved forward with it. He said, well, let's dive into education, right? Maybe I'm not ready at this point. So let me go to school and learn more about being a bass player and being a musician and see where that takes me. And at the same time, he was hungry for opportunity. He was looking for an opportunity. So when it was presented to him, Hey, why don't you go retune those guitars and restring those guitars? He, he said, yes. He said yes to the opportunities that were presented to him. Took and those thought opportunities. it was awesome. Thought it was awesome. He just loved being able to do the work. Yeah. You know, be open to opportunities and say yes to things, uh, but also be pumped about it and just be excited about being useful to the people that you look up to. Yes. Right. If you can help them in any way, then that's awesome. If you're just restringing a bass, then that's awesome. If you're cleaning a toilet, then that's awesome. (laughs) Or if you're setting up microphones to record uh, an album, you know, like that's awesome. It's just, there's some truth to like paying your dues. Yeah. Sometimes you got to start out getting the coffee and cleaning the toilets. (laughs) And that's okay because if you stick with it, those more opportunities are going to be presented and you're going to prove to everyone around you that you're the type of person who's interested ready and willing to engage in the opportunities that you present to them. Yeah. And that's another thing that we've heard is just putting in the time, like going for longevity, being the person who's going to show up every day or being the person that's at all the gigs or just being consistent. This is a point he, he brought up about longevity, like going for longevity and putting in the time. It can seem like a long slog, right? But you have to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Right. You have to enjoy putting in the time, like whatever that is, like he was really excited to be cleaning guitars or restringing guitars or whatever. That's that's the way you have to be. If, if you feel like that's shit work and you don't want it, it's probably not going to work out for you. Yeah. Um, but if you're excited about it, people are going to notice. And then um, as Damien pointed out, like people will come in behind you and they'll be the ones restringing the bases and you'll go into uh, something else because you have always showed up. You were always excited. You were always helpful and consistent. So he talks about rules versus traditions. Rules are things that we we really have to pay attention to and play by. Like this is these are the things that make up 
the paradigm that we're playing in. Right. But then there's a lot of things within that paradigm that we think are rules, but are really just traditions. Right. It's just the way that people have always operated. You have to be aware of that. Like, there are rules. You got to play the game. But then look out for the traditions. Like, are you just doing something because that's the way it's always been done? That's what everyone else has done. Well, that's a tradition. That's not a rule. You can think about doing it in your own way or trying something completely different. We're giving away a copy of Damien Key's book, The Rule Breaker's Guide to Social Media. Head over to our website, musicbusinessheroes.com forward slash book and enter your email address for a chance to win. The winner will be announced in our season wrap episode airing on September 3rd. On the next episode of the Music Business Heroes podcast, we talk to master stage carpenter Andy Jones. Because all these stages are rented. And if you were to get a rental car, you could rent a Lamborghini or you could rent a Honda Civic that's 12 years old and has got 180,000 miles on it. You know, you're going to have... It's not a bad car. Hondas are good cars. But the check engine but light the might the check be engine out. lights keeps coming on. <laughs> it, might, it might need a wheel bearing. <laughs> you can't figure out why. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review. Reviews help us feel better about ourselves and help other people find the show. Follow us on Instagram at Music Business Heroes. Send us an email at musicbusinessheroes at gmail.com. Find show notes and past episodes at musicbusinessheroes.com.